Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Good morning, sisters and brothers. It is a joy to be with you. Uh, I come to you from the metro Atlanta area, and so that coast-to-coast trip is a real thing in this COVID season. Um, My flight actually initially uh, got canceled when I was supposed to come here after I waited in the airport for seven hours, and then we had engine problems, and then they fixed the engine problems, then there was paperwork, and then when they finally finished that, we were getting ready to take off, and they said, anybody who has a West Coast connection, you're not going to make it. And I said, sounds about right. So um, I'm excited that I actually was able to be here, because um, it was in doubt for a minute. Um, So uh, for those of you who uh, are just meeting me, uh, let me tell you a little bit about who I am and what I do. Um, So I serve as the National Director of Racial Righteousness and Reconciliation for the Evangelical Covenant Church, which essentially means that I am a pastor to pastors, helping pastors make connection between scripture, discipleship, and the commission of scripture to be ambassadors for reconciliation in a divided world. Um, I really feel like God has placed a deep burden on my heart to really help the church to live in love in a way that makes God's name known and love shown throughout the world. Um, I think when we think about the gospel, oftentimes we make it a lot more complicated than it has to be. Um, And I am going to Uh, Preston this morning about some ways in which even the way that we read scripture can actually be part of the challenge that we're trying to overcome as we try to make our churches more reflective of the love, mercy, and justice of Jesus Christ in a world that desperately needs to see it. Um, So as somebody born and raised in Metro Atlanta, Dr. King's footprints or fingerprints are all over my faith formation. And I'm going to start this morning by uh, recontextualizing the the parable of the Good Samaritan for us before we move in to um, some of the conversation about love that we see in John 13. And then ultimately, we will land by unpacking a passage in scripture that has some tangible applications for our pursuit of understanding God's heart for justice and what the people of God are supposed to do when they witness injustice in Acts 16. So uh, Dr. King, uh, talking about the Good Samaritan, he says, like the Good Samaritan, we must always stand ready to descend to the depths of human need. The person who fails to look with compassion upon the thousands of individuals left wounded by life's many roadsides is not only unethical, but ungodly. But then he takes it up to the next level. He says, every Christian must play the Good Samaritan, but there is another aspect of Christian social responsibility which is just as compelling. It seeks to tear down unjust conditions and build anew instead of patching things up. It seeks to clear the Jericho Road of its robbers as well as caring for the victims of robbery. And this is the kind of biblical interpretation that I think we need at this watershed moment in the church. When many people are looking at the church and they're seeing that we are just as divided as the rest of the world, 
they're wondering what is unique about us. They're wondering what is distinctive about our witness in a world that desperately needs to know that something else is possible. And part of the reason why I believe we don't live in love in the way the scripture commissions us to live in love is because we have not really adequately, as the Old Testament says, dealt with the weightier matters of justice. So in the passage that we read, Jesus tells us that the world will know that we belong to him by how we choose to love one another. There are few things that allow us to bear witness to our kingdom citizenship by how we choose to respond in the face of harm. The reality is that this world teaches us that we only have to be concerned about oppression and injustice when it directly impacts us or people that we see ourselves as connected to. But the gospel has a radically different truth. It says that we are an interconnected body and that when something happens to one part of the body, the entire body is supposed to feel that pain. We're supposed to respond, and we're supposed to respond reflecting the love that was first shown to us and demonstrated to us by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But out of all of the words in that passage, the most important word in the passage that was read for us is the word if. Because sisters and brothers, love is a choice. And love defined by scripture, which we know in 1 John 3.16 says that we know what love is because Jesus laid down his life for us so that we should lay down our lives for our sisters and brothers. Love is sacrificial. Love is inconvenient. Love is costly. In a world where we say we love donuts and we love our, we love, hey, no tax on people who love donuts, but in a world where we talk about how we love donuts and our favorite cuisines and our favorite TV shows, we need to understand that the way that the gospel talks about love is profoundly different. It's not just about some emotional sentimentality. It is about getting in the muck and the mire of the harshness of our lives so that people know that Jesus loves them and that Jesus' love is expressed through us as the hands and feet of Christ in the world today. So right now we are living in a moment where the church has a number of different theories about how the world will know that we belong to Jesus. Many people believe it's by what we stand against. Some people believe about, it's about politically what we advocate for. But Jesus gives us the remedy, and he says the world will know that we belong to him by how we choose to live in love, particularly in the face of harm. And so when we go to Acts 16, I think this is a beautiful illustration of what that looks like on the ground in community through individuals who profess faith in Christ. And so if we go to the first slide, at its heart, Acts 16 has been interpreted in hundred different ways. But at its heart, Acts 16, 16 through 40 is a story about what will be akin to police brutality today, a corrupt judicial system that's more committed to money than it is to justice, and devout disciples who refuse to turn a blind eye to injustice within their midst. In this passage, we see Paul and Silas who are on their route to do some missional work, and they encounter this woman who has been 
um, possessed by a demon. And there are these two powerful men who the text refers to as slave owners who are basically exploiting this woman and the demon possession within her for their economic advantage. Paul and Silas encounter this woman, interrupt their plans, and intervene on her behalf and liberate the demon from her. And in freeing her, the text says that the men's hope for making money was gone, and it threw the city into an uproar. Now, this is the first little slight hint that they're trying to give us, that this oppression and the exploitation, economic exploitation that's coming from this woman is not just about these two men. Because why would the whole city go into an uproar if it was just about these two men? These men's exploitation of this woman is connected to this entire inner web of exploitation that the city's economy is thriving off of. And the text said that the men became so infuriated by Paul and Silas's liberating action that they were determined to make them pay. Um, if we go to the next slide, um, a name that I want you to get familiar with if you don't know him already, he's a theologian by the name of Willie Jennings. He is a professor at Yale Divinity School, and he writes in his commentary on Acts that the oppressed enslaved body of this nameless woman is where the demonic and the economic were bound together. Paul Jennings writes, speaks to her and to the spirit at work in her that binds her to her owners. The point was not to silence her voice, but to release it from its network captivity. Ministry in the name of Jesus Christ releases people to speak, especially poor women, by challenging the voices of their oppression that constantly wish to speak through them. And then Jennings closes, to free someone is never without cost. And so in this passage, these men affirm what Jennings says, and they are determined to make Paul and Silas pay. So they take them down to the city square, which uh, doubles as the, uh, where the judiciary is held. And this is another way scripture is trying to give us a little hint. Why would the magistrates and the judiciary be housed in the same place where the marketplace is? Um, and so as they go and they actually bring charges against uh, Paul and Silas, they, uh, the two men, say more than their economic disruption. They intentionally misidentify Paul and Silas as Jews. And this is important because in Rome, the anti-Semitism was palpable. Everybody knew that Jewish people held no chance of actually receiving justice within Rome's courts. And so in doing this, they would do what we would call today dog whistle politics. They actually let the people know that these people don't belong to us. They're not a part of us. They're outsiders. They don't warrant the same measure of justice as it would be if it was a Roman citizen coming before the court. And in doing so, um, the text tells us that the crowds kind of release xenophobia. Their hatred towards Jews is unleashed. And the crowd starts to participate in the persecution of Paul and Silas because they've been misidentified as Jews. And they're stripped naked, they're beaten with rods, and they're jeered before they're denied access to a trial. All because of the way that they have been ethnically misidentified. And 
for us in the U.S. today, um, I don't know how many people understand the depth and the breadth of the brokenness of our judiciary. Um, but Brian Stevenson, uh, the executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative, commonly says that we have a criminal justice system in the U.S. that works better for you if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. That is actually wealth, not guilt, that informs culpability within our present system. And in this system, we see that the Roman judiciary is more interested in profiteering than it is in administrating justice. And I love the fact that scripture slows down and stops to point out these details because sometimes we can understand scripture as some archaic book that has a collection of stories that have no relevance for our day and time. But scripture is trying to help us understand systemic sin is real Bias, ethnocentrism, these things inform leaders' judgments and they cultivate an unequitable society. And when the people of God get eyes to see, ears to hear what's going on around them, we have to also have hearts to respond. And Paul and Silas demonstrate what it looks like to have a heart to respond to systemic sin in this passage. So what we see is not only when they see the woman who is vulnerable and being exploited that they enter in, but we also see that Paul and Silas, particularly Paul, is acutely aware of what's going on with the system. He knows that him and Silas are being mistreated um, and denied justice because they've been misidentified as Jews. But instead of doing what he could have done, which is actually say, you know what? They say we Jews, but I got papers. We're Roman citizens. You can't treat us in this way. Paul knows that for him to actually pull out his citizenship status at this point just to, to avoid enduring suffering actually would have been unfaithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ because he knows that that would have kept the system intact. And he knew that him as a Roman citizen, someone who was benefiting from the status quo, that was benefiting from the way that things had been constructed, actually were there things that were gonna be to his advantage. But he also knew that as a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, he could not be content within a, a land that had a judiciary that only worked for certain people and not for all people. He knew that he had to be a person who was willing to subversively use his power and his status as a Roman citizen to work towards a more equitable justice system that was just for all and not just for just some. Paul goes in and they endure humiliation, they endure brutality, they endure persecution, and they do it silently suffering because they have taken on the mindset of Christ. They literally put Philippians 2 into action in how they interact with this unjust system in this passage. And the profoundly transformative piece of this passage is that they do it knowing. Because what's so important is one of the core questions of the gospel that I believe that we as ministers all too seldomly raise before our congregations is one of the central questions that scripture comes back to over and over and over again is, do you believe that the gospel is still good news when it costs you something? When it means that you have to suffer Romans 8.17 tells us that we are called to share in the sufferings of Christ and that when we do, we will be co-heirs with Christ. 
It's another one of those big if questions. But we haven't really fleshed this out. What does it mean for us to live in an unjust society when we see inequities, when we see suffering, when we see persecution, and we, going back to the Good Samaritan, take the ministerial approach that happens in that passage and we pass by on the other side? We say, that's not my problem. That's not my issue. I don't feel like that's directly impacting me. So I get to keep going on interrupted with my life. You see, if we take John 13, 34, and 35 seriously, every time we have an opportunity to intervene on behalf of our sisters and brothers and we choose to pass by on the other side, we have to ask, what does that communicate to the world? These are missional opportunities that we have to bear witness to who and whose we are. And we get to show the world that we serve a Lord and Savior who is intimately concerned about the suffering of oppressed people. We get a chance to demonstrate that God is a God who sees their hurt, their pain, the inequities of our society, and God is concerned about it. And God is working in you and me as the hands and feet of Christ to bring restoration and liberation to the captives who have been bound by injustice and exploitation and sin in our world. Paul and Silas, let's go to the uh, slide that says, what is privilege? Because at the heart of what we are trying to really reckon with in our day and time, I would argue, but also in this passage, is the fact that we live in a reality where privilege is something that seduces us away from our missional purpose. It is something that tempts us to believe that we have the option of choosing when we want to get involved in something that we can get involved until it feels too costly and then we can opt out and it's okay. Paul and Silas in this passage are so prophetic because they know exactly what's going on and they know the whole time that they can opt out of it, but they choose to stand in solidarity with their sisters and brothers. And in Acts 16, 38 through 39, it makes it explicitly clear that the officers reported to them, this to the magistrates. When they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. This is the key. The magistrates cared nothing about their persecution of Paul and Silas. They cared nothing about the fact that they were stripped, beaten with rods, denied access to a trial, until they realized that they were people of privilege. We live in a society where because of privilege, some people are more affirmed, dignified, and their humanity is more protected than others just because of certain status that they might have, just because of a certain element of their embodiment, just because of their race, their gender, their class, their nationality, their citizenship status. This is a reality that is not of God. And as we see this reality manifesting itself in our communities, scripture is calling us that we have to have eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to respond to that brokenness and to do it in the name of Jesus Christ, proclaiming that there is another way to live together. Jesus comes and he inaugurates the kingdom of God 
which is radically opposed to the worldly empires of this world that are predicated upon this type of power structure. The kingdom is coming to dismantle this kind of way of seeing each other, this way of thinking that we don't belong to one another. And Jesus has entrusted to us as the church, as ambassadors of reconciliation, to live out this message in a way that declares God's name and God's love in a world that desperately needs to see it. After the, Romans, uh, the magistrates realize that they are Roman citizens, then they come and appease them, and they want to escort them from prison and release them at, in the dark, uh, in the er wee earlies of the morning, where there is no accountability for their injustice, for the systemic sin, for the anti-Semitism that the criminal justice system is rooted in. And this is where I love Paul. I know many of you probably got some issues with Paul because of the way that we have been taught, been taught to interpret the scriptures, and we could talk about that a little later. But this is where I love Paul because he prophetically responds. In the next slide, he says, but Paul said to the officers, Officers, they beat, us without, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now, do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. Paul finally says, now's the time to pull out my privilege. Now's the time to pull out my Roman citizenship. I'm going to pull it out and I'm going to leverage it to create systemic accountability, to expose the injustice, injustice of the system, and to work towards creating a more just and equitable society for all of God's children and not just some of God's children. It's so prophetic because Paul is somebody who's benefiting from the system the way that it's constructed. He didn't have to do this. He had nothing that he was personally benefiting from by doing this. But he knew that his faith in Jesus Christ meant that he had to have eyes to see the way the system was treating all of God's children and not just people who were like him, privileged people. What the gospel is calling us to in our day and time is to have a sober analysis of our lives and for us to see where we have privilege, where we have access, where we have influence, and how that access, influence, and privilege might be causing us to turn a blind eye to the suffering of our neighbors. And as we are sober enough and mature enough in our faith to actually come into a revelation of where that might be happening, how do we start to take steps towards becoming a more faithful representation of God's love, mercy, and justice in a world that desperately needs it? Sisters and brothers, there are people suffering in our communities, and we actually have resources, we actually have power, we actually have influence to help shine a light on that suffering. And we get a chance as a collective community to mobilize people into understanding that we do not have to live in this us versus them mentality. We don't have to believe that certain people are, it's okay that systems and structures don't treat certain people with the same humanity and dignity as they treat other people. We have lived in this kind of brokenness for so long that sometimes I believe that we have a defeatist mentality that there's really nothing that we can do, that the problem is so big, it's so entrenched. What can we do as individuals, as a church? But I believe this passage is a call to help us to remember that we actually don't just go out in our own power and strength, but we go out in the power of the Holy Spirit 
that actually has the power to transform systems and structures and bring life where death and injustice and oppression have reigned for far too long. Since Paul knew that he and Silas were stripped, beaten with rods, severely flogged, denied a trial, and unjustly imprisoned, all because he knew that they were accused of being Jews, he knows that the, 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 the silver bullet is actually the whole time to unveil the fact that they're Roman citizens. But he chooses to hold on to it as a form of standing in solidarity with his sisters and brothers who are immigrants in the land to declare that the gospel calls us to radically affirm the humanity and dignity in all people, even people in our communities that has become popular to dehumanize and see as the other. When we see, take the model of Paul and Silas, privilege then becomes a revolutionary tool that those who possess it are commissioned to leverage to hold corrupt systems and structures accountable and to forge systemic transformation that they know that those without the same privilege, access, and social currency are un unable to wield within the world. You see, this was heavy lifting that only Roman citizens can do. An immigrant didn't have the power to prophetically speak back into the Roman justice system. This was only something Romans could do. And Paul and Silas demonstrate the prophetic power of our witness when we understand that privilege has a missional purpose. We are not entrusted with privilege. We don't have privilege from both sinful systems and structures or privilege of being appointed to positions of influence just for our own personal benefit or the benefit of our biological families. There is a missional purpose to why we have what we have, and we get a chance to go out and subvert power structures that are designed to work in a certain way to redeem those systems and structures, deconstruct them and reconstruct them in a way that honors our Lord and Savior by bearing witness to our true citizenship, which is not of this world, which is of the kingdom. Let me go to that last slide that says empire and the kingdom. Because at its core, what we really have to sit with is some of the ways in which the ways of this world, the patterns of this world, are diametrically opposed to the truth of the gospel. This world tells us that we are supposed to exploit our privileges for our selfish gain and to make our lives more comfortable and our children's lives even better than what our lives were. The gospel says that we leverage our privilege to advance the kingdom and to sacrificially love our neighbors. The world says that we exercise privilege to opt out of suffering. The gospel says that we show the world that we are Christ's disciples by entering into suffering when everything around us tells us that we don't have to. The, the world says that unprivate privilege is something that really is supposed to make our lives more comfortable and actually distance us from the suffering of this world. The gospel says that privilege is something that we are supposed to subversively use to prophetically stand in solidarity with our neighbors who suffer. The world says that privilege is something that leads us into thinking us in them ways. We see this with the, Jew, the Roman citizen and the Jew in this passage. But when we look at our lives, we see this with race. We see this with mental cognition. We see this with citizenship status. We see this with class. Um, 
But the gospel says that we are all inherently interconnected and that my flourishing is tied up with your flourishing and our flourishing is tied up to our neighbors who don't have housing's flourishing. And our neighbors who don't have housing's flourishing is connected to our neighbors with mental impairments flourishing. Jeremiah tells us that when we seek the peace and the prosperity of our communities, that's where our flourishing is found. Philippians 2 tells us that we're supposed to put the interest in the needs of others before our own interest, and that's how we take on the mindset of Christ. Everything around us in this world has a contradictory message to what the truth of the gospel is. Unbridled unbridled privilege causes us to uh, cross by on the other side of the road, as we saw the ministers do in the Good Samaritan passage. But when we take seriously the truth of the gospel and the love that was first displayed for us on our behalf in Christ, in the incarnation, Jesus had the opportunity to stay in the shalom of heaven, but he chose, compelled by love, to enter into the brokenness of the world and to die on our behalf so that reconciliation with God and neighbor could be a tangible reality in our world. When we look at the example of Paul and Silas in this passage and we look at the ministry and the life of Jesus Christ, we must see that in the midst of suffering, pain, injustice, sin, individual, and systemic, when Christians see this, we are called to be people who respond and to respond in the name of Jesus Christ, reflecting the love, mercy, and justice of our Savior in a world that desperately needs to know that there is another way to live and be and belong. We get the chance in this watershed moment to redeem the reputation of the church by how we go out into our communities and live in a way that demonstrates our kingdom citizenship in a world that wants to seduce us into a nationalistic vision of belonging that's rooted in anti-gospel truths that say that some people's lives are more reflective of the image of God and more worthy of being protected, valued, and dignified. And as we know that this is an anti-gospel truth, the question is, are we willing to pay the price in our society and our communities for living prophetically for Christ, even when it's unpopular to do so? Let me pray for us real quick, and I will invite uh, the worship team. I think, oh. God, I'd just like to thank you for your word and the way that it is a blueprint for our lives. Thank you for giving us a word that still speaks truth and a fresh word of conviction in our midst today. Thank you for the prophetic witness of your disciples like Paul and Silas and sisters and brothers who have the ethical and moral courage to go out and declare in a world that has other priorities and principles that we do inherently belong to each other and that our flourishing is tied up in one another's. In your name we pray, amen.